The Spectator's podcast now have a newsletter. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights to get The Spectator's podcast highlights in your inbox every Monday. Welcome to Holy Smoke, The Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Carmel Thompson. You may have heard me on two previous podcasts. I was talking to my brother Damien about my cancer journey from the time of my diagnosis to living with it in lockdown. But although I'm doing really well, I'm pleased to say, I don't want that to be seen as my only reason for being. And I've been given this rather lovely guest opportunity to talk about something else other than cancer, which is also a bit of a change from one of Damien's topics. That is art. I'm rarely happier than when I'm getting my cultural fix of going round exhibitions, particularly paintings. But Damien would be the first to admit he's very lazy on that front, and I think he's missing out. Because art can be a very powerful, soul-centred experience, if you like, and a source of consolation in times of stress and anxiety and difficulties like illness, something really scary like that. Because being face-to-face with a piece of art, I think, is much more than an aesthetic encounter. However appealing that can be, I mean, whether it's the capture of expressions, the gorgeousness of skin or fabric, the richness of a landscape, the depiction of light or form or texture, whether it's something that speaks of great talent or of the diversity of human experience. I was reading an article in Psychology Today that said... Art asks something of the viewer in terms of emotional and spiritual sensitivity. It's said that art can release something that's imprisoned if we pay excessive attention to worldly concerns, if we let it. And that got me thinking about the way that I and others look at Christian art. Have Christians like myself got into the habit of looking at Christian art in a secular way? of failing to properly read art that was intentionally created to project Christian messages and values something higher? Are we neglecting the true message of invitation to a better spiritual engagement and an examination, possibly enrichment of our faith? Something that's so much more than the pleasure of admiring something beautiful or impressively crafted. Now, these are big questions, and I needed somebody special to help take a look at these and to shake up my perceptions and perhaps others' perceptions of what Christian art can do for us. And that's why I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Ben Quash, who's Professor of Christianity and the Arts at King's College London. Ben has also been Dean and Fellow of Peterhouse in the University of Cambridge, researching and educating across Christianity, Islam and Judaism. And he's been part of many different arts initiatives and organisations, from the Britain Symphonia to the Victoria and Albert Museum to the National Gallery. For our talk, Ben has selected a range of extremely thought-provoking artworks. They vary from old master gorgeousness to the homely but quirky to the jaggedly austere. They're surprisingly different, but they have one thing in common. In their own way, they all address the eternal question of how to portray both the humanity and the divinity of Christ. I should say that I know it can be frustrating to listen to depictions of art that you don't have in front of you, but if you visit the Holy Smoke blog post for this episode 
on spectator.co.uk, you'll find links to all of them. So if you're listening to this while connected to Wi-Fi, you can click right through to the artwork Ben is talking about. Ben, perhaps could I begin by asking what has brought you in your academic life to bring together these great disciplines of Christianity and the arts? And I believe you're the first chair at King's to do so. I am. I feel very lucky, actually, that that um, this post was created at a time when King's was beginning to engage more deliberately with London as a cultural environment. And lots of departments in King's were encouraged to identify ways that the different disciplines within the university could engage with London. And my department, which is Theology and Religious Studies, recognised the huge holdings that London's galleries and museums have in Christian art and artefacts. And so they proposed this new chair at just a time when, well, there's nothing I could have wanted more, actually. It's as if a job had been designed for me that I would have designed for myself. So I'm greatly fortunate to be in this job and now for over 10 years to have had the chance to bring theological ideas into conversation with the arts institutions of London and beyond. So we had a previous conversation and some very interesting themes began to emerge from bringing those two great disciplines together and my own sort of personal inquiry about this sense of transcendence and and where can Christian art take us. We have a vast array of, of paintings we can talk about. To start with, I think you raised the interesting question, have we actually lost the ability in many Christian artworks to read the stories that are going on within them. Yes, there's a probably apocryphal story, although it's believable, of someone overheard in the National Gallery passing in front of various paintings in the Sainsbury Ring and eventually saying, I love all these pictures of um, mothers and children, but why is the child always a boy? Um, and that's, that's a kind of indication, even if apocryphal, of pro- probably a, a, a level of ignorance about Christian stories, biblical stories and Christian subject matter in our present time, which for the last 2,000 years was unthinkable. What is certainly true is that the Sainsbury Ring in the National Gallery, where all of the earliest artworks are, almost all of which are of Christian subject matter, they're either altarpieces or parts of altarpieces or paintings made for religious devotion. That part of the gallery is, is often much less busy than the galleries at the other end, where the Impressionists are, which are sort of thronged with people trying to get you know, within a few feet of Van Gogh's sunflowers because those are the sort of cultic objects of today and relate to the idea of the artist as tortured genius and all the rest of it. So so that I think also tells you something about the fact that people don't quite know what to do with that great body of religious art which is our shared cultural heritage but the access routes to it that people have available to them are relatively few. So there's a new kind of biblical illiteracy not the literal illiteracy, if you like, of those who in the medieval period couldn't read the Bible and needed works of visual art to help them learn about the stories and form their own judgments about them, but, but actually just simply not knowing about what the stories are at all. For just that reason, I think that this new illiteracy of the early 21st century can be addressed by works of visual art, just as the old illiteracy of those who couldn't read in the Middle Ages was also addressed by works of visual art. So we're starting with Duccio di Boninsegna, who was Siena's leading artist in the early 14th century. And we're looking at his painted altar panels known as the Maester or Majesty, predella panels. 
which were part of a double-sided altarpiece from 1311 for Siena Cathedral. Three of these panels are in the National Gallery. This is a great place to start. There's lots of action going on, gorgeous colours on a shimmering background and a kind of subtle nobility to the figures showing the life of the Virgin and of Christ. There's also a kind of simplicity and a holiness to the stories that are depicted. But is there more going on? Yeah, they're very special panels. So the, the Meister altarpiece was a huge scheme. On one side, a, a large image of the Virgin. On the other side, a series of, as you say, smaller panels which tell the stories of the life of Christ and are therefore a, a sort of early and detailed narrative sequence. It almost seems trite to compare them with a cartoon strip, but there's a sense of a sort of graphic novel about them because of the way that each small image takes the story forward. And this was not only an important, but a, but a holy image in the context of Siena, made to honour the Virgin whose protection the city felt uh, it owed its whole existence to. The ancient rivalry between Siena and Florence at one point peaked in a, in a great battle, the Battle of Monteperti, and the Virgin was appealed to uh, by the Sienese to protect them from the Florentines and in doing that she secured her eternal position as the great protectress of the city and so the, the Maestal altarpiece celebrates the Virgin in that role but it's doing an important job in telling the story of Christ and the panels are sadly are now distributed to lots of different places but the two that the National Gallery is fortunate to have that I particularly love are two panels, one of which is the healing of the man born blind, which shows the man whose healing is uh, at the centre of the story twice. So we see him first of all in the act of being healed by Jesus. Jesus has his, some of his disciples gathered around him and the blind man is holding a, his blind man's cane in his hand. And then we see him again having turned away after having been healed the cane cast to the ground and he's looking out as it were towards the edge the right hand edge of the panel as we look at it and the brilliant thing about that apart from the fact that it's telling a story which those who couldn't read the bible would nevertheless have learnt from and recognized also from preaching and so on it's also doing something very clever that is both artistic and theological because the panel next to it towards which the newly healed blind man is looking is the panel that shows the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain, when three of his disciples, his nearest disciples, his divinity is displayed in this explosion of light that comes from his clothes and his face and his body. And it's towards that that the man who's just been healed of his physical blindness is looking as he turns away. As it were, you know, he's looking through the divide between two panels towards this miracle of the revelation of the spiritual truth of Christ. And the reason I think that's so powerful is that it shows that there's a progression, not just from physical blindness to physical sight, but then a second step, which is the progression from physical sight to spiritual insight. And the leap from the second to the third is, as it were, as great as that from the first to the second. That's really extraordinary, isn't it, when you think um, that we, the viewer, are using our sight to take in the stories and the messages within that, but sort of educated through the medium of, of a man being healed of his blindness towards not only just physically seeing, but to achieve greater spiritual insight. Exactly. And so if you think of the logic of that, it's as though it gives you a whole rationale for religious art, which is that really great works of devotional art effectively 
heal your blindness. They conduct you from looking at the mere surfaces of things, the mere representations of things, towards deeper spiritual truths. And that sense of a progression that material objects made of pigment and you know, wood and all of the sort of stuff that makes up physical objects, the works of art that we, we can see in a gallery, all of those are nevertheless capable of conducting you to a quite different dimension. And then that leads us perhaps to think about another theme that arose in our previous discussion, which is beauty, really. Can beauty be a vehicle that leads us towards this new spiritual insight because it's something that attracts us in? And I think you talk about Christian art as an invitation towards reflection and spiritual renewal. That's true. So education is there and then this move from physical to spiritual is there. And then there's this element of desire that I think you can't eradicate and shouldn't. It's actually part of why we're drawn to look at works of art at all, I think. And actually, interestingly, that triad of things, sort of teaching, moving from the physical to the spiritual, and awakening desire and feeding desire through beauty, are all parts of the very early defences of visual art that were made in the 7th and 8th centuries, when in the Eastern Orthodox Church, or the then Byzantine Church, there was a great fight about whether it was proper to make images, religious images, and particularly images of Christ and the saints. And the argument, I'm glad to say, was won by the iconophiles, those who loved images, against the iconoclasts who wanted to smash them up and eliminate them. And, and the great arguments for why we should have them were actually those three things, that first, they helped to teach people, and that's the education point. Second, because Christ himself had become flesh and therefore taken matter and you know, physical embodiment to himself in order to conduct people towards God, a relationship with God, one could affirm the power of material things to lead you to spiritual things. So that was that second point, the move from the physical to the spiritual. And the third thing, which John of Damascus, one of the great defenders of icons in that debate, uh, articulated was zeal and wonder, those two things, zeal and wonder. And that, I think, is the desire point, and that they awaken zeal and wonder. And that's where beauty comes in. But what's interesting, I think, is that beauty might also have to be kind of reconstructed, certainly in a Christian context. And that's because at the heart of Christianity is a crucified man whose body is destroyed, effectively, in a brutal execution. And yet this particular image of the crucified Christ becomes the most repeated, the most central visual representation of Christian identity. So something very unbeautiful, the crucifixion, is at the same time at the centre of a visual tradition that the iconophiles are celebrating as all about desire and awakening desire. So how can you desire something that, that is that appalling when it's realistically depicted at least. There are so many different interpretations, aren't there, of crucifixion. I mean, if we look at Roger van der Weyden, uh, the deposition or the descent from the cross from 1435, which is now at the Museo del Prado in Madrid, that is an extraordinary image, is it not, where you could say that the body of Christ is in fact rather beautifully and gracefully portrayed, but in a scene of the utmost grief, and also in this very unusual setting where you get the gold-leafed and framed background and then a sort of living, fleshy foreground where the, the figures are actually standing somewhere. 
That's such a wonderful painting. In fact, Susie Nash, who's professor at the Courtauld Institute, has commented about that work, that there's a very, very strong case, two verys, <laughs> that, that this is the most important painting of the whole period of the entire 15th century. And it certainly it was copied and adapted by huge numbers of artists after its completion over, you know, for two centuries or more. As you say, the emotional impact of it, the weeping of the mourners who are grieving over Christ's body, it's hard to beat. And it's probably the painting that put realistic tears on the map of Western art. And no one had painted tears like this before. Grief, traditionally, like other emotions, had been signalled by kind of rather stock, standardised gestures of people's hands and the postures of their bodies. But what we have here are these tears that are just jewel-like and have that, you know, watery quality, sparkling watery quality, that I think conducts you into a, a new relationship with the, with the feelings that surround this death. And, and yet, as you say, the body of Christ is a rather beautiful one. In fact, the whole painting is exquisite. So more than one thing is going on here. You've got probably an attempt to honour Christ's divinity. And because you can't actually paint divinity, you can't paint the divine nature that is Jesus's alongside his human nature. You have to signal the divine nature in other ways. And for a lot of Renaissance artists in particular, the way to do that was to try and paint the most perfect human body, even in death, because at least in some way you signalled your recognition that there was divinity here. But at the same time as this perfection, you've got this genuine, dreamly, empathetic recognition of the nature of human grief. So it's not perfection that eliminates the turmoil of the experience of being a human being. And I think Mary Magdalene especially is brilliantly portrayed in this painting because she, as she did in traditional readings of the New Testament, as she did when she anointed Christ's feet when he was alive with her own tears, she again anoints them even after death. And her humility, which was part of her, as it were, seeking to honour only his feet, becomes a sort of elevation of her, a dignifying of her, because in remaining attentive to his feet, even in death, when they can no longer carry him to her, the feet raise her upwards as Christ's feet are raised upwards. She, in remaining attentive to them, herself as, as, is, as it were, brought into a standing position. And she's also at the, the right-hand side of the painting as we look at her. And if you think of the way that in the West we tend to read from left to right, it's as though she becomes the sort of culmination of this painting and is given a particular place of honour while herself adopting a position of humility. So she's transformed through her humility into a position of honour. And that, I just think, is very moving. And just look at the way in which the tears fall almost sort of vertically through her fingers to the wound itself, as though seeking to anoint the wound in his feet. She's extraordinarily moving, isn't she? Deeply moving, yeah. Represents, does she not, the sinner in all of us, the repentant sinner and the redemption that is possible, I suppose. I never really looked at her before. I, my eyes had always been drawn to the crucified Christ, but uh, that's a really interesting new insight. She's, yeah, I mean, she's worth following through so many different works of art because very often, as you've said, she performs the role, almost a sort of proxy role within the painting of how we might feel as the viewers of the painting. Because although it's a development beyond what we learn of her in the New Testament itself, she came in Christian tradition to represent a sort of archetype of the flawed human being, the sinner, who is nevertheless highly favoured, who's recipient of the particular attention and care of Christ. And then in traditions that post-date the New Testament, she's often celebrated as a sort of paradigmatic penitent, somebody whose reformed life becomes a model for Christians who themselves are 
seeking a, you know, a new form of life. So she's a very natural point of access emotionally for people who feel the moral complexity of their own nature and the desire for a new life because that's just the journey that she took. And her presence in paintings is very often, I think, therefore, of emotionally speaking, a point of access for, for us. So taking on this idea of what is the meaning of beauty and desire in paintings and what is the role of the artist in all of this, of artists who are trying to provide some Christian instruction or, or to move us in a certain way. So what are we to make of Albrecht Dürer, his self-portrait, which I think is sort of styled at, at the age of 28, but is also called Self-Portrait as Christ from 1500, which is in the Alta Pinakothek in Munich. So this is a, a very beautiful-looking, full-frontal Christ, as you put it uh, to me, of Albrecht Dürer with his beautiful curly hair and this glorious fur coat that he's wearing. So take us a little bit into, into that one. Gosh, yes. Yeah. So this is complex stuff because Dürer's portrait of Christ is, as you've said, a self-portrait at the same time. And this shows where we have to introduce certain distinctions, if you like, within the broad category of beauty, because there are forms of beauty that are to do with formal qualities of an image, where you divide it, how you balance different structural elements, different colours and so on to, to create a pleasing effect. And there's beauty, which is, as, as it were, just merely sensory satisfaction. And Dürer is brilliant at, at both of those. In, in a sense, what he's given us in that particular painting is something very carefully attentive to things like the golden section and where certain dividing lines happen geometrically within the painting. And also a set of rewards, sensory rewards, for those of us who like to have the almost tactile feeling when we look at a painting of what the hair would feel like, what the fur would feel like on his collar, which is just, in painterly terms, exquisitely rendered. But all of this might also make us slightly alarmed because the virtuoso talent of Dürer as a painter is a central part of what's being celebrated in this painting, even though it appears to be a sort of devotional tribute to someone else, to Christ. And Dürer notoriously likes the fact that his initials AD, Albrecht Dürer, are the same as the initials Anno Domini, the Year of the Lord. And so when he put, paints them, as he does in that monogram, into his works of art, you actually start, perhaps uncomfortably, to feel this is a conflation of an honouring of Christ with a celebration of self. So that's where I think the beauty of this image, which is, you know, geometrically and in terms of the artistic skill of the, the textures it renders, and, and actually just look, the left hand, if, if, if people are able to go and look at an image of this, the left hand of Dürer is not visible in the painting. He's painted his right hand which suggests quietly, subtly, that his painting hand, his left hand in this case, is not at rest in making the image. So he's sort of signalling that he is the maker. Now, when faced with that, I think one has to think, well, is there another kind of beauty beyond the compositional, the geometric, the formal and the sensory? And I think that's where you get into territory where a certain sort of Christian perspective will want to push a beauty that is not on the surface and it is not just formal, but has to do somehow with love with the relationship between artist and work and the relationship between the work and the viewer because it's in the relations between those that another kind of beauty resides the beauty that conducts us towards deeper insight greater compassion and a proper recognition of what's most true about the world and ourselves and sometimes the beauty that is truth and goodness isn't just the beauty that is the beauty of the senses and of geometry it's a beauty that might actually, in lots of ways, look ugly to begin with. 
It might be the image of, of someone whose actions of love cause them to suffer. And that's where the cross comes back, I think, as as an image that is beautiful, not because it meets all the requirements of proportion or just because of the skill of the artist's hand, but is beautiful because it expresses love. That's a different kind of beauty. And I think that that's something that the greatest Christian art manages. Dürer may not have, because I think there's a, there's a sort of odd intrusion of self into that otherwise brilliant image that actually blocks that particular and more ultimate kind of beauty, which is the beauty of love. Well, let's take Stanley Spencer, who painted a series of paintings called Christ in the Wilderness. I think he was planning to paint 40 compositions, but I think only a few were completed. 1939 to, I think, 1954, and I think some of them are in the Art Gallery of Western Australia in Perth. I've known Stanley Spencer mainly from his predilection for depicting his beloved Thameside town of Cookham in Berkshire and charming original ways of showing ordinary, prosaic, perhaps lumpy, sometimes overweight, folksy townspeople and friends there as the protagonists of biblical scenes like the resurrection, Cookham. To me, it makes these divine themes very accessible. So here we encounter not a beautiful image of Christ, really, but a very accessible, rather chunky, rather solid and and stocky Christ who's unshaven, wearing a very simple white robe. And he's in a series of encounters with natural wildlife and animals and seems to be quite at home with them in a very peaceful, serene way. What do you make of these? What what can they teach us? (laughs) So he's not a Renaissance idealised Renaissance man, is he? He's a homely Christ, I think. I would probably say not particularly ugly. Ugly is a bit strong, but he's homely. And I think that's very characteristic of Spencer's delight in the domestic, the local, the village that was really his home and his spiritual home all his life of Cookham in Berkshire was a place that he set lots of his New Testament scenes not actually these wilderness ones, but lots of them. And that expresses his love of the homely and his belief that the incarnation of God as human was uh, an entering into ordinariness, the, the mundanity and fleshiness of ordinary life. So his focus on the homeliness of Christ, I think, is very theologically very appropriate. And there's also a childlikeness about the kneeling Christ here, the bulky Christ, who probably with some difficulty kind of heaves himself up and down from his knees in order to look with great closeness and delight at the wildflowers of, of the wilderness, which are really in a way, the, especially the daisies, they're the wildflowers of the gardens and countryside around Cookham. So that delight and that childlike delight, I think, is beautifully expressed and, and a nice counterpoint to these perfect, often rather sort of statuesque, classically derived Renaissance Christs who, in signalling you know, Christ's dignity as, as God and human, feel that they need to, to make him look very different from most of us who aren't so perfect or statuesque. And Spencer goes the other way and, and really tries to connect Christ to our own sense of our surroundings and our bodiliness. So, yeah, they're delightful. And that childlike use of the knees to focus undistractedly and to dwell joyously on what is before us, the way a child plays with complete involvement in some small object that they found. I think he's captured that brilliantly. He was, of course, having a very difficult time, wasn't he? Um, yes. Because uh, his private life was all over the place, having left one wife for uh, somebody who seemed uh, right. rather yeah. unsuitable in the end of it all. So he was obviously going through... Uh, it was in World War Two as well, so he was going through a very difficult... No, you're quite right. Yes, he, and he was, I think, with almost no money... 
he was sort of living in a bare room in London trying to paint this series of what what he imagined might be 40 panels, as you've said. And that, that I think, and he thought that each work would be displayed in turn during Lent. So the 40 days of Lent, it, there'd be a painting for each one of them. But so there's a Lenten part of this, as well as the delight and the joy and the homeliness. There is also a strong sense of the sort of struggle of life and the link of this to the penitential season. In other words, the wilderness was Spencer's own and not just that that Christ was in as he set himself apart in the desert. And yet, even in that poverty, Spencer's channeling probably, you know, something like chapter six of Matthew's gospel, where Jesus talks about not taking any thought of raiment, but instead considering the lilies of the field. In other words, trusting that God will provide enough, not worrying to the point where you're disabled by worry and anxiety. So that's rather moving, actually, that this, the considering of the lilies is what we see in a painting like that. And that Spencer stuck in a room in London, trying not to take too much thought of raiment, but trying to, to share in that more optimistic vision of how God's provision will nevertheless be something he can rely on. Maybe from there, that rather consoling, rather soothing position that has a lovely, warm and accessible feeling to artworks that are much more challenging. And briefly to look at the crucifixion by F.N. Sousa, who was a, a Goan born of Indian parents, and it was in 1959. And to look at Michael Landy, his kinetic sculpture called Doubting Thomas from 2013. So those are rather uncomfortable, I would say, and very challenging. What made you choose those as examples? Well, so we've, this is to take another step beyond homeliness to the genuinely ugly and horrific, I think, with the Sousa. Let's think about Sousa first. I think a very um, intelligent uh, acquisition that Tate Modern made, I think in 1993, of this work painted in 1959. And Sousa, I think, had really been in many ways largely forgotten by many art critics and art historians. But it's an extremely significant painting, partly because it, it, it's representative of, of a larger tradition in 20th century art of going back to the cross, to the crucifixion of Christ, not only to think about Christianity and not only produce works of devotion, but to use the inherited iconography, which we all share, this is all part of our shared cultural inheritance in the West, to use that iconography to address contemporary experiences. And what Sousa does is show us a tortured Christ with terrifyingly fierce teeth to do several things. I think he's, it's grotesque. He's partly reflecting on his own complex history with Catholicism, because as a Goan in India, he was brought up, he was the first of the post-independence generation of Indian artists to establish a career in Britain. But he felt, I think, culturally and religiously quite a lot of conflict about the Christian legacy in Goa and colonialism. And this is a unmistakably non-white Christ. He said of this that, that he wanted to refute the blonde operatic Christs of Western Christian art. But at the same time, it's actually very Western in the sense that one of the key inspirations for this work and others like it, Picasso's crucifixion, uh, expl explorations of the crucifixion, for example, Francis Bacon and Graham Sutherland, was, was something that actually has quite deep roots in Western religious art. And I think particularly of Matthias Grunewald, who in the early 16th century painted probably one of the most influential crucifixions ever, the crucifixion panels of the multi-panelled Isenheim altarpiece, which shows an agonised Christ whose tongue is swollen and protruding from his mouth, whose body's covered in sores, whose skin is tinged green, 
whose fingers are curled up in agony. There's no idealisation here of what a death like that might have been. Instead, there's a strong assertion that the extremes of human pain and suffering are not alien to the Christian message. And, and yet it's a religious image. This is a Christian image painted for a Christian context. When that work comes into contact with the new traumas of the 20th century, we've talked about Spencer in the Second World War, here Sousa experiencing colonialism in India. When that painting comes into the contact with those sorts of extremes of human experience, it activates, it speaks to them, and it calls forth new artistic responses because it feels as though Christianity can still speak, even in those extremes. And I think Sousa, like Sutherland and Bacon, while they may not have felt comfortable with traditional Christianity, saw the power of that Christian tradition to some way help them articulate the traumas and the horrors of their own time. So that's a very, very interesting work and typical of actually of, of several examples of the extraordinary way in which we might think we're in a secular age, but Christian iconography is probably as lively as ever, although it's doing new things, in the work of modern and contemporary artists. Now, the, the other one that you mentioned, Michael Landy, Doubting Thomas, this is very interesting. It, it was it divided opinion. It was part of a series of works he made as artist-in-residence at the National Gallery, coming from a position which knew very little about Christian belief or narratives. He walked around, looked closely at lots of paintings, and became fascinated by certain figures and certain scenes. And what he did was make an exhibition that was a bit like a fairground almost, because you interacted all the time with it. You didn't quite put money in a slot, but you know you could take turns to, to do things that had effects. So they were almost like entertainment. I should say there's some extraordinary YouTube films to show you what these sculptures are like in motion. Yes. Very easy to, to mock that kind of thing when you don't give it the time and attention to see what he was actually trying to do. Exactly. So I think you've, you've put your finger on it that part of the reason it divided people was a lot of people leapt to the conclusion this was just mockery. I personally don't think that's the case. And the Doubting Thomas sculpture, for example, is one that required you to put your foot on a pedal and cause the finger, the Thomas finger, which is sort of on a sort of axis... Uh, it's like a metal hands. arm, isn't it? A spring, a sort of me mechanical arm with a spring, exactly, to jab the torso of Christ. And this act actually had the effect of so progressively, as people went and visited and used it, so damaging the torso that it had to be replaced. But that actually seemed to me to be a way of involving the viewer, implicating the viewer of the work in an encounter a dramatic encounter with, a, with an ancient story and actually with this torso which represented the person of Christ in a way that could be quite disturbing and potentially quite transforming because you suddenly, I found, recoiled from what you'd just done. You'd done something inadvertently violent and had to question yourself and think, well, what actually in the name of entertainment might I have done? How might I have played a part in this story with its disturbing aspects? What kind of a player have I been in this event? And, and that is actually in deep continuity with what many painters have done with that Doubting Thomas moment in the past. And so I, I have a very ambitious research project, which is creating an online set of exhibitions where we group works of art around a biblical text, a passage, a story of the Bible. It's called The Visual Commentary on Scripture. 
I was going um, to introduce that because it is oh, uh, yeah, an amazing project, yes, and uh, which is ongoing and which provides a, a wonderful resource of artworks and commentary in really unusual ways by very well-informed and theologically informed historians. Well, I'm glad you think that. And the reason it particularly springs to my mind when we talk about the Michael Landy is that he features in the Doubting Thomas exhibition, that work features. But it's alongside two more traditional paintings, one of which shows us Thomas probing the wound in Christ's side, so we sort of have a detachment from it. Another of which shows Christ looking straight out of the painting at us as though we are Thomas, and as it were opening up his wound for us to investigate, and that's pretty disturbing. And then Michael Landy, which takes it all the way to the point where we are given the agency to make the finger move. But it shows that Michael Landy's sculpture is, is in a tradition which can implicate us in the story. And that, if you like, alongside the things we talked about earlier about art as educating, as developing physical sight towards spiritual insight and awakening and exploring desire, there's this element of transformation. And I, I think that the implication of the way that works of art sometimes implicate us. They make us feel we are, we're not just looking at the work, the work is addressing us and examining us and exposing us and sifting us. I think that comes out really well in that Doubting Thomas exhibition. And Michael Landy sculpture plays a really significant part in that, which, whether he intended it or not, is in a vein that Christian artists of the past would have understood. Ben, those are some great examples that have helped illustrate a really fundamental message that we should look again at the rich seam of Christian art and art inspired by Christian values, including the more shocking and surprising pieces. And, of course, that Damien should start looking at it at all. <laughs> because there is another artistic dimension that can be so much more affecting than aesthetics in terms of our spiritual health. Which makes me wonder if art could be one of the ways to help address dwindling attendances in church and faith under pressure. What if more religious education, church environments and even sermons could be centred on Christian art? Where could that take us? Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you very much, Carmel. I've really enjoyed it. The Spectators podcast now have a newsletter. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights to get the Spectator's podcast highlights in your inbox every Monday.